Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called How Do We Fix It? And it's hosted by Richard Davies and Jim Meggs. On How Do We Fix It? Richard and Jim talk to all kinds of thought leaders and experts and professors and researchers about how we fix problems, all kinds of problems, cultural problems and political problems and medical problems, any problem you can think of. You can find How Do We Fix It? by typing How Do We Fix It? podcast into Google, or you can go to their website, which is howdowefixit.me. You can also find How Do We Fix It? on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy this podcast and I highly recommend it to you. And we'd like it so much that we're going to give you a, a little sample of what you'll hear there. The following episode is from How Do We Fix It? Jim, you keep me in touch with my inner contrarian, and I want to thank you for that. (laughs) That's what you say now. (laughs) (laughs) This show today is a call for better thinking and is in opposition to our dominant culture, which rewards outrage and and really punishes nuance. I I love this idea of the the loss of nuance and and the the fight to bring it back, because I'm always the guy who's saying, yeah, I agree with you, but... (laughs) Celebrating nuance, Megan Dom. If I want anything to be taken away from this book by any given reader, it's permission to be conflicted. We're not allowing ourselves to to sort through our confusions. You have to be on one side or the other. And I always say to my students when I teach, if you're not conflicted, you're either lying to yourself or you're not very smart. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Last week, we spoke with Pierce Godwin of Listen First about the need for better conversations in this angry, hyper-partisan time and why it's enriching to all of us to listen to those we disagree with and understand where they're coming from. So today, instead of listening, it's thought and the need not to follow the crowd, but to be more ourselves. The more honest we are about what we think, the more alone we are with our thoughts. Our guest, Megan Daum, wrote that. Not Friedrich Nietzsche, (laughs) although it could have been. Megan is a writer of a regular column for Medium. She's also written a longtime column for the Los Angeles Times, Her new book coming out this week is called The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. Megan, welcome to our dining room table here at How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. So let's start with with what's wrong about how we talk to each other or at each other in our public square. You say challenging uh, assumptions is something that gets you penalized. It used to be just... an article of faith in liberal thought. If you were a thinking, rational, enlightened person, you listened to what other people had to say. You thought critically about your own thought process. You looked around, you looked for evidence. And 
over the last couple of years, and I think this has been very much emboldened by social media, the reward system for doing precisely the opposite is so great that there are people waging very successful careers just sort of saying the obvious thing over and over again and very loudly and not advancing any arguments. And you made a journey from a certain pretty comfortable worldview. I'm going to actually read something you wrote. You said, I spent most of my adulthood fairly aligned with the kinds of people I'd gone to college with. That we were all on the same team was simply a given. We all read the New York Times, listened to NPR, and voted for Democrats. And then what happened? Sometime around 2015, now this is well before Trump emerged as anybody we ever thought would be in the White House, I started to notice there was a lot of pushback, especially on social media, if you were a woman who considered herself on the left, if you were suggesting anything that went against the approved feminist message, articles of faith among extreme leftists, if you were saying, hey, wait a second, maybe there is a gender wage gap, yes, obviously, but maybe we should look at the reasons for that, you would be slapped back and your argument would not even be heard. And in fact, you wouldn't even want to continue speaking because the reaction would be like, whoa, wait a second, are you, are you anti-feminist? Are you an internalized misogynist? What's going on here? So how did you come to change your, your, your way of, of thinking? You know, it's funny because I actually have not changed my way of thinking. What's changed is the degree to which I am aligned with a lot of my peers. So, you know, I started working as a journalist, as, as a writer in the early to mid-90s. And I kind of figured out early on that I liked writing controversial essays. I liked being counterintuitive. I liked suggesting to my readers that we assume one thing, but what would happen if we thought about it a different way? And back then, if you wrote articles that got readers angry, you got another assignment. That was the job. That was the job of being a public thinker, right? And, and now? <laughs> well, you know, a couple of years ago, I started to notice that you, that wasn't the job. Actually, what you were supposed to do was say the obvious thing. In your book, you talk about becoming a little bit obsessed with some thinkers that you were following online and on YouTube. And one of them was the linguist John McWhorter, who's somebody I really admire. What did he bring to the discussion that intrigued you so much? So John McWhorter, yes, he's a linguist. He uh, now teaches at Columbia University. He and Glenn Lowry do these regular dialogues on this YouTube channel called bloggingheads.tv. And they talk about race. They're both African-American guys, but they talked about race in a way that was incredibly nuanced, especially John McWhorter. And it's funny because what they were doing in terms of talking about race was what I wanted to do in terms of talking about women's issues and, and feminism. And so what kind of brought this book to life was my starting to think about women's issues and my frustrations with the way a lot of the stuff was being discussed. Could you, could you give us an example of, of something that, that you said that you thought, hey, this is what, you know, I, I'm a feminist. I come out of a liberal tradition yeah. and something which got a lot of pushback. Well, here's the thing. I grew up right alongside second wave feminism. Okay. Okay. So what is that I was first? Well, second wave <laughs> feminism, you know, there are waves of feminism. So right. the first wave of feminism were the suffragettes back, you know, the, the turn mm -hmm. of the century, mm -hmm. voting rights, 
Second wave feminism comes along in the late 60s, early 1970s. That's Gloria Steinem, that's Bella Abzug, and a lot of that had to do with reproductive rights, abortion, access to birth control, workplace issues also. And so these sort of benchmarks of feminism were really imprinted on me. And, and all the while, I never had a sense as a girl growing up in those decades that I was anything but equal to boys. It did not cross my mind. If anything, boys were doing worse. They were getting worse grades. They weren't sitting still in school. By the time I got to college, far more women were going to college than men. We graduate. We're buying our own homes at a higher rate. So I never had a sense that we were falling back in any way. Now, fast forward a couple of decades where we're sitting now, the the premise in the culture has become this notion that women are an underclass. Somehow, despite all of this progress that was pretty palpable to me, the dominant narrative is that we are now operating, or we are still operating under the thumb of this patriarchy. And I thought that was really strange and, and interesting, and that's what I started pushing back on. And that's where I noticed a real division between what I thought and what apparently I was supposed to think. But the, the pushback to you, though, is that the vast majority of corporate boards, CEOs, leaders of Congress, our president, are men. Right. And, and that women have made great strides, but they're still not at the top. That's true. And I would say women have made great strides, but they're still not at the top. But even this idea that women have made great strides, that is somehow overlooked. Also, with your background as a, someone who's a close observer of everyday life and, 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 and dialogue... It strikes me that some of your reaction is almost temperamental, like there will be a certain style to modern feminism that just kind of gets under your skin. And you wrote that you almost called your book, You Are Not a Badass. Yes. What were you thinking? This idea of the, of the badass, I mean, I started noticing this on sort of on social media or, or Tumblr. There was this like this kind of idea that that the woman, you know, it was so difficult to be a woman in in contemporary America that just merely getting out of bed every morning and paying your rent on time and going to work, you know, fighting the patriarchy at every turn, that made you a badass. Hashtag. Yeah. And it it just somehow, you know, became this meme and it became this sort of shorthand for an empowered woman. And um, yeah, I was just, I was just irritated by it. Yeah, I do have, I mean, a lot of this book, I, I'm kind of winking at myself. I'm, I'm laughing at myself because, yeah, I do just personally, um, like I'm kind of a prude. I don't love the pussy hats at the Women's March. I love the Women's March, and I would never, ever tell anyone not to go or not to wear a pussy hat or carry whatever sign they want. But for me, they just kind of make it kind of makes me cringe a little. But that's you, just me. You sound conflicted. And I think part of what you're saying is, Many of us are conflicted. We should embrace that sense of being conflicted rather than try and put ourselves rigidly in one camp or another. Totally. If I want anything to be taken away from this book by any given reader, it's permission to be conflicted. We're not allowing ourselves to to sort through our confusions. You have to be on one side or the other. And I always say to my students when I teach... If you're not conflicted, you're either lying to yourself or you're not very smart. What do you say to people who say, fine, but we're in the fight of our lives right now. We can't afford anybody to waver from our team. We need to be in this together and fight 
you know, the, the powers that be? And how dare you admit to any doubts or any nuance? I would say we are in the fight of our lives. Uh, you know, the, the threat of the, the Trump regime. I can't believe we've gotten this far in the conversation without his name coming up. I'm sorry I was the first to do it. We are in a pretty dire situation, which is all the more reason that the left has to get its act together. You cannot use Trumpism as an excuse for an undisciplined strategy, for lazy thinking, for authoritarianism. You know, it's funny, the, the authoritarians and the puritanicals used to be on the right, right? And now they're on well, the left. Well, I, I would argue they still are. <laughs> yes, they are, well. but, but they're coming together. It's the horseshoe theory, right? So, you know, these extremists on both sides have more in common than, than we would like. Well, let's talk about that authoritarianism a little bit. That's an interesting word. The people you're talking about would never see themselves as authoritarians. You're talking about people trying to police discussions, police yeah. political viewpoints on the left. Yeah. And I mean, I want to be really careful about how I talk about this because, you know, there is this sort of narrative that comes out of Fox News and Tucker Carlson. They're, they're happy every night to broadcast the latest campus craziness story. It's very easy to cherry pick extreme examples of campus leftists trying to shut the school down because they thought that cafeteria food was culturally appropriative, whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, I think those things get blown out of proportion. You know, words like trigger warning and special snowflake and all that, I think those have been sort of weaponized and, and really diluted out of any, any meaning. Um, but I do think that there are this tiny fraction of extremists on the left have an outsized influence. I mean, you can get a couple hundred people on Twitter calling somebody a racist and a corporation will come in and fire that person. And that to me is really scary. What is different about our age now? Um, is social media dumbing down the conversation and, and, and rewarding those people who are either very much on the left or very much on the right? Yeah, it definitely rewards obvious messages. And if the smart, thoughtful people don't start pushing back on this and saying exactly what you said in the beginning, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's this, it's sort of this, it's this other thing, and not being afraid to have a nuanced conversation that includes conflicted, conflicting ideas. If the smart, thoughtful people won't do that, the stupid, thoughtless people on the other side, on the right, are going to be happy to step in and have conversations along the same lines that are a whole lot less productive and less nuanced. You say your mission is inspecting your own house for hypocrisy. What are some examples of, of that? Well, you know, people say, oh, why do you beat up on the left? The right is so much worse. Yes, exactly. That is why we have to patrol our own house. You know, there was James Baldwin had that beautiful quote from notes from of a native son. He says, you know, I love I'm going to misquote him, but, you know, I love America more than any country in the world, which is why I uh, retain the right to to criticize her at every turn. I'm paraphrasing. But, yeah, I just. I've always held the left into higher account than the right. I expect more. Um, we have a lot of smart people over here, and the smart people need to start speaking. But it seems that there's an awful lot of beating up on other people that are on the left. I mean, a lot of the targets of this are liberals. Yes. Well, because liberals are not the same as progressives. Progressives are like 
the new liberals. Progressives see liberals as neoliberals. To be called a liberal at this point is sort of to be called a, a centrist, if you're lucky. And I think that that is so misguided because when you are beating up on another group, you are implying that that group has more power than you. Like this comes from the punching up, punching down concept in comedy, right? In stand-up comedy. Like you're allowed to make fun of somebody if they have more power than you, if they're a celebrity, if they're richer than you, whatever. So with that as a premise, this idea that it's okay for women to make fun of men and tear them down because ostensibly men have more power, well, maybe they don't in all cases. I feel that that's just a way of literally handing your power over to somebody who might not necessarily even have it. I want to stay with that thought. But first, it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Megan Daum, who is the author of the new book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. Megan, you were the first to mention Trump. Uh, I, I am the Sorry. second. You can bleep me. You can bleep that out. <laughs> I, I am the second. Just building on that thought about responding to people as if they are stronger than you, I have thought for a while that many of Trump's outraged critics have made him seem much more powerful and strong than he really is. Uh, that he's actually a pretty weak president. He's an unpopular president. He's a president who's failed at, at, at many of the things he's been trying to do because he's not an effective leader. We talked about leadership in a recent show. Uh, what do you think? I think he's clearly very weak. And I think their argument would be, well, even if he himself is not powerful, if he is weak, the, the institutions that have elevated him are, are quite powerful. And, and, you know, Mitch McConnell is quite powerful. You know, we have many mechanisms that, that are keeping him in power. So I think that's fair to say. It's like, I feel like this kind of Trump derangement syndrome, it's just become this furious entity in and of itself. And, and I, I really don't know how it's going to shake out. It's almost like whatever you were upset about before, you are like extremely upset about it in the wake of this Trump phenomenon. So what do we do about it? I knew you how, were going to ask we that. <laughs> you know, I think that, again, it really comes down to this idea of nuance. I think we have to allow ourselves to sit in our own confusion. And, you know, you can be a liberal and a conservative at the same time. There are pieces yeah. of us that are fundamentally conservative and there are pieces of us that are fundamentally progressive. One thing we've seen in a lot of extremist movements is a kind of competition for who can be most pure. And you said at one point, we have to stop canceling ourselves. What's going on there? Well, part of what I meant by we have to stop canceling ourselves is that we have to stop having so much anticipatory anxiety about what we're about to say that we don't say anything at all. I can't tell you how many students I have come to me. I teach graduate writing students for the most part. And these are people with a lot of ideas, very well read, um, you know, have decided that they want to be writers. But nonetheless, they come to me and say, well, you know, what I really want to write about is such and such, but I can't say that. I don't have the energy. I'm going to get shot down in my classroom, and uh, I don't want to be beat up on Twitter, so I would never publish this. 
and it really is disheartening. That just, to me, is completely counter to the whole point of like being a thinking person. And so that, when I say the, the cancel culture is is troubling because it's rewarding yeah, the people who do that, do the opposite, who don't think. There's this term cancel culture that maybe not everyone knows. What do you mean by that? Well, yes, this I feel like it has really come to a head almost like the last month or two, right? So cancel culture is this sort of umbrella term that has come out of this phenomenon on social media, I guess, especially Twitter, where if somebody, if a comedian or a writer or somebody um, in, in, a, in a public figure says the wrong thing, says something that could be construed as racist and sexist, whatever. And in some cases, that means if some seven-year-old tweet that they said gets dug up, um, it can be decided by this sort of Twitter mob of extreme purity police enforcers that their career should be over. So, you know, to can you can, you know, Louis CK has effectively been canceled because of what came out about his behavior w- with women. A lot of our discussion has been about conversations that you are having that you believe need to happen within this sort of left-leaning liberal consensus. But isn't it also important for conservatives to do this? I mean, don't don't they need some nuance? Yes. And they need to do things like stop relying on kind of one-note right-wing campus speakers. There are really thoughtful, interesting, complicated thinkers on both sides. There really, really are. And um, I do think there's a growing audience of people that are eager to hear them. Part of it is how you define yourself and what you're willing to step up and say. But also part of it is how you respond to other people. I mean, are you finding this in your personal life? You're surrounded by friends who are all kind of on the same page. Like, do do they handle you, well, <laughs> you know, the you new d- you, appropriately? What have you learned from this? <laughs> you know, uh, what has happened uh, are that I have I have people talking to me privately. I mean, the the number of times a week that someone says to me, "Well, I can only tell you this. I'm telling you this." but I wouldn't tell like somebody else. Like on what else. topics? Oh, like how they really feel about something like immigration. They'll say, well, look, I'm horrified by the kids in cages. That's not in question. But, well, I kind of wonder, like, what is our immigration policy? I've been looking into this. Do we want open borders? Does that make any sense? What were we doing under Obama? Why haven't we been talking about this before? What makes sense? And they say, if I said this at a dinner party among my, you know, supposedly liberal friends, I would get the the stink eye. But the funny thing is that some of those very same people at the dinner party might come to me separately and say the exact same thing. It's like we're having these private conversations. They're being starved of the oxygen of the, the public sphere. This is not the only hysterical time we've been in. I mean, the, the, the famous example from the 50s is Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare. And you as a Gen Xer grew up um, with with AIDS, with the whole AIDS epidemic yes. erupting when you were a child, um, we're older than that. Um, how does that affect your thinking? You know, that's a really good analogy. So I was a teenager when we started to hear about AIDS. And, you know, I am of this generational cohort. There's a very particular window of us when we were sort of in our early 20s. The safe sex message was in a moment where activists were were so concerned about about getting funding and getting the message out there that they really created this this I hate to use the word hysteria but there was a sense 
of alarmism. And they were saying heterosexuals are going to get HIV. I mean, I went to college and I sat there and listened to some like health advocate saying there are lesbians on this campus that are transmitting HIV to other lesbians. You know, the idea was, you know, look around. One of you is going to be dead by the end of this, these four years. And it was crazy. And we bought it. And then as time went by, it was like, hmm, well, actually, this isn't happening. Yes, everyone's on the same page. We need research. But why did we have to use social panic to get here? And I feel like that's happening um, to a greater, lesser degree on, on other fronts at the moment. I mean, you see it with climate change. I hate to open this Pandora's box, but, you know, I I don't think any rational person believes that climate change is anything but an imminent threat. It is. And, it and yet demands have, our attention. And yet, and yet we have half of the political establishment saying it isn't a problem. Yeah, well, they're saying it isn't a problem, but I wonder if their uh, inclination to say it isn't a problem is being, uh, is, is the result of... Too many people on the left saying we're all going to be dead in 10 years. And many children believe that. Yeah. If you call children today, a huge number think they literally will not survive their lifetimes because of global warming. That really disturbs me. I have to say, I, I do not have children, I, I, but I remember being a child and I remember how afraid we were of nuclear war. And this just seems exponentially bigger and scarier than the nuclear war message we were getting. I mean, this, it, like these kids are being told not only that that the world is going to end in 10 years or or be be radically different and unlivable but that somehow they're the only ones that can solve it it's like on their shoulders and they have to convince the rest of us and you think that that is harming the climate change movement uh, look i don't it, from where be. i sit i worry that it might be i don't know i but i do think you know what i noticed back during during the the aids uh hyper awareness period was that you had people who you know, we, th who were so sort of worn down by the relentless um, fear mongering uh, that they just said, well, screw it. I don't care. I'm not going to use condoms. Like you're telling me that, like, if I don't do this every single time, I'm going to die. Well, I don't have any evidence of that. So I'm not going to do anything. And I'm not going to believe that this is a problem. And that's not the right attitude either. Like, so you mean we need nuance? We need nuance with climate change. So I cover climate change and energy oh. a lot. And Actually, I, I think that the overstatements also lead to overstated policies, which often don't work. And the inability to sit down and say, let's really look at the data, let's really study what yeah. works, you know, these aren't just the, the lack of nuance isn't just something that affects the quality of our conversations. It actually can be manifested in bad policies. That's right. Yeah. And I think this is a good example of that. Yes. Celebrating nuance, Megan Dom, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? My pleasure. Thank you. There were a lot of things I loved that Megan said in the interview, but I, I think my favorite was she said, to deny someone their contradictions is to deny them their humanity. And I, I just think that's such a powerful statement. And in, in a way, it's another thing that you, that you could have heard from Friedrich Nietzsche, that our contradictions are part of being curious, part of being open to experience, part of not being dogmatic, is recognizing that sometimes you're going to have thoughts and ideas that, that don't all hang together, and that's okay. And this is not about being a moderate. In fact, 
Megan Dom has said, being in the mushy middle is the worst form of nuance. I mean, she's clearly from the left, but she's saying we are all contradicted and that it's, it's okay to embrace that, uh, that we may all want there to be a simple narrative to make things clear, but we have to resist that temptation. You know, you see this, I mean, a lot of her book and, and our discussion is about how people get punished for that nuance. They get punished for admitting doubts about some doctrine that is accepted on their side. You're seeing this on the right, too. You're seeing that, you know, intellectuals who have not embraced Trump get sort of highly driven out. But, they get but pilloried. They, uh, they certainly do. And, and, and they also, they lose business in a way. I mean, yes. if, you know, your business is getting a lot of traffic for your writing and stuff, if you're... If you're a Trump-doubting conservative, things are a lot tougher. And so there's a business model on both sides that, that aggravates a problem that's already a cultural problem, which is this desire for you know, a unified front against the perceived enemy. Thus, the title of this episode, Celebrating Nuance. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The music is by Lou Stravinsky. Thanks for listening to our show.